Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 64th episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my best friend and other co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, do you like my cat st- scaring stick? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a pool stick. I had a, uh, I have a pool table downstairs, but before this episode started, I had to chase the animals out, and I had to scare the cat. I go, ah, <laughs> ah, and he was like, "What is that?" Oh no! Goodbye, water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that, that. The fun of having animals, you know. Mm-hmm. That uh, water bottle thing—that's how mine got some nice little dents in the lid on the side of it. But you know, it just means you're using it, right? Yeah, mine's tragically has this little dent here at the top. Oh, gosh, uh, that didn't just it. happen. Right, right there. Oh, I see it now. Okay, but I just, I just think of it as a little thumb holder now. It's a perfect <laughs> little thumb indent. Uh huh. This way, I have extra good grip when I'm drinking out of my my water bottle. Yeah, yeah. I see. I see. It was, a, it was an intentional mistake, you know. Yeah, you you were just shaping it the way you wanted it shaped. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I like it when accidents work out and then you can post hoc, like rationalize or find a justification for it. It's why I like trolling has such good equity because as you figured out by now that like if I say something actually dumb, I could just be like, no, I'm not dumb. I was just trolling. Ha 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 ha. That is a classic. Yeah, the hidden upsides of, of trolling. Mm-hmm. I hear you're having your own cat conundrums over there at the moment. Yeah, Misty's sure having a time. I don't know what's going on. She's like, hello. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to ask Misty some questions? We have a long list of questions to get through today. Do you want to ask Misty anything before we get started? I think she'd just ignore us, honestly, if we try to ask her questions. She'd just like, go on with whatever she was doing anyway. She doesn't really mm-hmm. care. Maybe that's the true wisdom, you know, the stoicism of a cat. Sure, sure. <laughs> okay. You want to jump into these questions? You want to just jump right? Yeah, I'm going to jump. You're going to jump. We're going to jump in together. Okay. So let's jump start. Why do you hate Dash? <laughs> okay. Uh, so I don't hate Dash. I think that Dash is powerful. I think she's a solid tier. I put her or a solid here. I put her in a tier. I think she is good. I don't know if she's really been living up to that, but uh, I think she is good. Um, I just don't think, I don't think her cards are cool enough or what she does is cool enough, I guess. Like, sorry, that's not true. I think that the, the building the mech thing is really cool, but no one's made that good yet. So maybe when that is good, I will be a big dash believer, but all, almost all of her cards are just like, generic cards that are slightly above rate and say boost on them or they're slightly above rate because what about the items they have go again the items are okay the items are cool just they're sorry tackle core gives you some resources that's all right um the induction chamber and plasma purifier they're they're cool. You slowly build up your pistol to be a real strong, strong pistol gun thing. But I lost that too many times to be like a big fan of it. I was an old time main for a while. <laughs> and then Sure. Uh the Teclo Pounder, I think, the one that just is worth six damage, is also just mm-hmm. damage and kind of boring, <laughs> I feel like. Um 
I think, I guess we, we have bright lights coming out soon and the new mech thing where they're like building their equipment and stuff that, that all looks really cool. And I'm excited to try that stuff. I just think like dash just didn't seem very interesting. And our hero power is like really boring. Just like you get an item. Boom. Yeah. The Herzoer hero powder is like de facto, whatever item you're bringing in. So like she has like a modular hero power. Sure. But there's only really two choices that I've seen people pick. Maybe three, three. No, there's induction chamber, plasma purifier and Teclo powder and pounder. Yeah, and it's really mostly induction chamber and pounder. So, yeah. and then you just choose plasma pure. But who knows what kind of sweet new items they'll come out with? <laughs> you just in chose bright lights. You know, the only reason you chose plasma purifier is because you wanted induction chamber, but it's worse against rampart. So you chose plasma purifier instead as your starting item. So yeah, I am very excited for bright lights, uh, but currently dash is probably in my opinion, the least interesting hero in the game because everybody else is doing cool things. And Dash is like, here's some cards that say boost. Smallest card pool up until Bright Lights comes out. Yeah, yeah. Card pool issues. Uh, the the new boost one, the one that looks at their hand, I guess it's not new anymore. P- more Pulse Wave Harpoon. That one's pretty cool. I think that's like the... Yeah. That's a cool card. Spark of Genius is a cool card. And most of the rest are kind of boring. Okay. Well, you just brought up uh, some dynasty cards, though. So I'm going to jump around a little bit. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to make some executive on the fly changes to our question order right now. Okay. I don't I don't know if our questions right were in a specific order, so moving them around sounds. They're good. not. But here, this is this is this is now the question we're handling next. How does Roger feel about Dromai getting better cards in the set than Bolton? The set being Dustaldon. And yeah, the, yeah, Dustaldon and Bolton. Um, well, you know, I was lying in bed trying to get to sleep, and I was like, it's really interesting that LSS is having us draft Monarch in this national season. And if we, we remember way back, you know, all the way to a year to like 15 months ago, basically when Austin was first born, there was the whole Channel Lake or Channel Lake, Channel Fireball uh hoarding monarchs booster box like inflating prices like scandal going on and it like tanked the value of most products in like flesh and blood to like stupid low levels and it didn't just affect monarch then at that point but also affected like welcome to wraith where like michael and i were buying cases of welcome to wraith like 250 dollars a case which was like okay um but i think one upside of handling it this way is they're taking that like old product instead of having like just sit on it in warehouses which is like a cost to like distributors or lss um they get to like get some of that old product out rotate through it since there was so much excess and glut in the system and when you look at it like that and instead dust till dawn is they just it was one limited print wave because of what they did with uh serialized chase cards the 10 of 10s or yeah the serialized cards so that's it they're not printing anymore um so if they're not printing extra of it and it's not like a continual like product that they want like a lot to 
like keep going forward if like demand suddenly spiked for it they'd have no way to like i guess like they, they they could just reprint it i guess but it's out of print basically the whole story is they wanted to underpower the core heroes in dust till dawn in order to make it this is my tinfoil hat theory uh in order to make monarch product like also liquidate more but they juiced up the generics and the base class cards in the set a little bit because they're easier to reprint and slot in to like future sets. Interesting. Whereas like if they overjuiced like the core talents for like Prism, Vincent, uh, Bolton, and Levia, like it's harder to like reprint those cards into like sets and stuff like that. Maybe that's not true anymore with like the new expansion slot, but like, I don't know. It's just my tinfoil hat theories that they push the generic cards because they're more blanketly powerful and it makes people more interested in the product overall while limiting the more, I guess, niche heroes, the talented heroes and power level. That's my tinfoil hat theory. I have no way of like proving that. And it's probably completely wrong, but like it was just a thought that crossed my mind. Yeah, I, I do think that Levia specifically got some pretty good cards in the in Dust Till Dawn. I think like most Levia decks are going to have a decent number of the Dust Till Dawn Majestics in them. Well, let me hit you with the like. So I also touched on Dust uh, Dynasty. So, do you think like the Demi Hero Levia Legendary is more impactful than what the Emperor is out of like Dynasty? Um, define impactful. Like, do you think it will cause like? I guess, like, do you think more players overall in the Flesh and Blood player base will be interested in, like, the Demi-Hero Levia flip card than, like, this uh, Emperor card or whatever from Dynasty? Because I think it's it might be a bit more, but I don't know that it's a lot more. Hmm. I, I don't really know, because I feel like I'm, like, I guess I feel like I'm pretty out of the loop of, like, what the casual player base is interested in. And I know, like, even if, like, Blitz is a tournament format, then like the emperor is not uh, not really what you want to be bringing to tournaments, <laughs> and uh, I think Levia is very competitive, and I think that the you can't play Levia without the new flip. You can, but like if you're bringing Levia to a tournament, you should include the uh, flip version in your the flippy plaza that consumed Levia redeemed in your yeah deck, but. If we also looked at Dynasty, like I think Dynasty was just like a testing ground of so many ideas because we saw the the legendary hero and the unique one of for a hero and Spirit of Irenia uh, uh, for Bolton and like neither of those prices are problematic from Dynasty um, and you can and like we argued at the time like, like Spirit of Irenia is what's going to take Bolton from being like this you know bad tier hero to like a good tier hero um because he has access to the sweet one of so like it's just <laughs> interesting to see like i guess like knowing that dynasty was also brian's like first set where he had like a lot of influence like it's just interesting to see like how that set's going to be developed over the course of like future iterations because you have the assassin uh, with Arachne, and they saw them basically completely overhaul, like, Arachne's ability for limited and, like, take the assassins in, like, a completely different direction than what they initially had in Dynasty. Uh, 
we had Soraya, the first angel uh, flip card. And, you know, that's Prism's like central mechanic now. Um, also a legendary in that set. And um, interestingly, there's like some small, subtle design changes between Soraya and the new angels. I think Soraya specifically cares about light cards being banished from your soul, where the new angels do not have that cause. Yeah, uh, whenever Soraya attacks, you may banish a light card from your hero's soul. If you do, Soraya deals one arcane damage to any target, whereas um, the new angels just care about banishing anything from your soul. I, I didn't even realize that was a text on Soraya. I've never seen, I think that's the first time banishing cards from soul has distinguished what type they need to be. I know Via the Vanguard cares about charging light cards specifically, so does Genesis, but I think that's the first time that like banishing cards from your soul, they haven't all just been like equivalent resources. Yeah, and it's interesting that they felt maybe it just speaks to why they wanted to like limit Bolton as well, because just the light restriction just wasn't restrictive enough, I guess, for like those zero to three charge cards or whatever that they had to put the further restrictions. They're like, it can't just be light cards because they're the talent, they're playing million light cards, anyways. If we actually want to put a deck building cost on these, they have to be a yellow pitch now. And like that, then, 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 then they're just like bad. So. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I just I just look back at the design file of Dynasty constantly. Um, Everfest as well, just because Everfest is more like these items have to be good eventually, right? You know, they, they can't just put they had a whole slot for them, the carnival slot or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like they have to be good. You know, that's sweet. They're gonna be they're gonna be good eventually one day, right? Maybe maybe we'll get there one day. So you said something oh. about uh, when you were talking about the Emperor, you said they were testing things. It was the first time they made a legendary hero, but that's actually not true because Shivana is the first legendary hero in Crucible 4. Shiana? Oh, you're not right. Shivana. Shiana. I forgot about that one. The, Shiana. The yeah, yeah, yeah. My bad on that one. I forgot Shiana exists, but like Shiana and the Emperor kind of fill into like similar niche roles where like they're just these weird legendary heroes that exist in Blitz, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they do, or they are. Bringing things full circle, I'm excited to see the interplay between, like, the Mechanologist cards and to see, like, if there are any, like, recurring themes or ways in which, like, or what the lessons overall from Dynasty's mech cards carry over into Bright Lights, because I think going forward, looking back on, like, the how Dynasty classes um, were developed in that set, well, like, be a good indicator for like the lessons learned for LSS design going forward. But I don't know. Sure. That, that makes sense. Okay. Okay. Now back on to you. Do you have any comments on Icelander at the time it said two battle hardens in a row? <laughs> uh, but now it's three battle hardens and a calling in a row, Mr. C tier Icelander. Yeah. Maybe C tier was a little bit low for where Icelander is. I feel like she kind of has been doing quite good compared to what I, how i expected her to do she um yeah she's been winning a lot um i think i understand a living legend soon yeah yeah i don't know why she's doing as well as she's doing <laughs> i think that bravo being a good big part of the metagame was very good for icelander and the calling where um oh, i forgot his name uh, the person that won the calling with Icelander beat up a bunch of Bravos playing Bolander. Um, that's a pretty good matchup for Icelander. Samuel Braben. 
Yeah. He's but, in our Discord. Shout out to our Discord. Yeah. Um, had some good conversations with him. Well, it's just good conversations. He posted a couple times. I replied to his comments. He had some cool insights about Icelander. There you go. Good conversations. But he confirmed it was like there were budget considerations for the deck. So, I mean, like, who knows? If, if, if uh, Sam was rich, maybe he wouldn't have won the calling, you know? <laughs> maybe these high price points for cards is actually good, you know? You know? Because it makes it so you can't buy the cards you want. So you're forced into playing the the actual correct cards because the cards that are actually correct are cheaper than the cards that are mm-hmm, mm-hmm. worse. Not playing Tunic anymore. We're done with that card. We're never playing. Yeah, that one's way, that one's way too expensive. Right? So we got to cut that one. Um, yeah, no, no more Tunics in our lists. Yeah, I think Icelander is. She's still very good against. She's still very punishing to decks that don't have enough resources to play their cards. What she's doing is still above rate. I I am surprised that she has won four events in a row. I think the first battle hardened that Rhea won, we saw her finals opponent had literally zero arcane barrier in their Lexi deck. It made sense that that was a good matchup when your Lexi opponent has no arcane barrier. Um I guess I, I'm surprised that uh, other decks haven't adjusted and found ways to f- be Isolator because I think that it is a deck that has some, honestly, some issues in terms of like some vulnerabilities, I guess. And I think if you want to beat Isolator and you put the time into it, I still think a lot of decks are capable of doing that. But uh, maybe the maybe the things you need to do to make your matchup into Icelander good warp your deck so much that you're just like not good into the rest of the field, and maybe that's just not worth it. And if that's the case, then Icelander's still really good. I know um, it's very easy to be playing a hero and very focused on them and being like, yeah, if these if they just do this and this and this and this and this and this, then my hero can never win. But like. First, they have to like figure out all the eight things they need to do, and they have to be willing to commit the sideboard slots to it, which is a lot, or the deck slots to do it. And sometimes that's not, sometimes either the time or committing the deck slots is too big of an ask. And Icelander does make some strong demands on the format. If you want to beat Icelander, you need to include Arcane Barrier, you need to include enough blues, you need to make sure you're not dead to Encase and Warmonger's Diplomacy. So, yeah. Um, Maybe a little better than I thought. That's all. That's fair. And I guess if we just take a step back from like this constant hyperbole that I myself engage in, obviously a lot, I'm a very hyperbolic person, uh, but the community as a whole is also quite hyperbolic, I would say. And everything is just either like, oh, this hero, this matchup's like unlosable or like this matchup's unwinnable. And I know there's like this, like we've had this discussion as far as like, as far as like, is Frabrary data like good? But I think at a high level, I think it's interesting to look at that in June. So if we look at Predestal Dawn, uh, every hero had at least a 40% or above win rate across the board, uh, except for Levia, who was at 34%. So she was just clearly like, like even Arachne was like hovering around 42% of like a win rate, which like, if you say like, well, you're going to win 42% of your games, like that's 
that's not bad. Like that's not an unlosable hero. You're going to win, you know, four out of every, you know, 10 rounds you play with that hero. You're not like winning any callings or day twoing or anything like that, but like you have a reasonable shot to like win a game of flesh and blood. Like, so like taking that deck to an armory, I think is fine. Like, I think like that is just speaks to like the, the overall like core design of flesh and blood that all games are going to be games usually like, as long as like people play well and um if we go to july now so post dust till dawn um every hero in the game has above 40 percent with the exception of new prism who is the new levia at like 37 percent. so uh like even heroes that people like rag on all the time like or like ourselves like like reinar or whatever like reinar has like a 46 percent win rate across the board like that's respectable like that's like i i just want to say that even in making tier lists and things like that so saying a hero is like a c tier hero like so you're saying like they have like maybe a 50 percent win rate across the board and like that's fine i don't know any thoughts on that yeah that's that's fair i guess like heroes are closer together than people say and like for a long time, I was, like, kind of saying that, like, the Lexi matchup as Icelander felt really bad, and it seemed really hard to win. And, like, I think... I, I would still say that it's Lexi favored, but it's definitely not unwinnable, and you can win if things go right. If a lot, There's a lot of factors in a game of Flesh and Blood rather other than just, like, the two heroes you're both presenting. Yeah, I think I said this on a recent episode where, like, Usually most games of Flesh and Blood come down to not like the overall like power level or like meta of the hero. It's just like who's making fewer mistakes where, you know, if you make two mistakes in a match, but your opponent made one mistake, you're still probably losing that match. And we saw that in the finals of the Battle Harden, you know, Majin Bay versus uh, Michael Fung. You know, Michael made some pretty critical mistakes in that game where like had he not made those mistakes, he could have probably won that match. But you know, it's the end of the day. He's been traveling around the world at this point, literally the opposite ends of the planet he's been on playing these tournaments. Um, so making mistakes in that. And even if you're not doing that, I, like I make mistakes in my games all the time. Everybody does. But I think it just speaks to the overall, overall like design of how good of a game Flesh and Blood actually is that um, the decisions matter more as far as like determining the outcome of who wins or loses more so than like the actual like meta like placement like being a meta hero being slightly more powerful will help you win games if you and your opponent are both always playing optimally but i guess another good way to like demonstrate this is like when i play bolton i get a lot of free wins uh by basically being like okay i attack you with engulfing light for three and my opponent's like oh okay, I'll block with my uh, blue attack action that I don't need this turn. And I'm like, okay, I'll get my engulfing let go again. You'll take one. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, you block with an attack action. So my, so I don't do that in armory. At an armory, I'll be like, you know, this will give it plus one. But like at a calling or like, the, like a, I think a pro quest that I top aided with uh, Bolton a few months ago, uh, like people just not knowing that like how the actual mechanics of the hero work just gave me like equity, which is weird to think about, right? Mm. That's weird, but that makes sense. I Again, I guess I feel like 
a lot of my success with Icelander at the, especially at nationals was a lot of people just didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, for sure, dude. I'll be top four that calling. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. Easily won all my Icelander mirrors that weekend. You're just like, here is my wounded ball. And they're like, what? Huh? What? What? Uh, and then some so people. So on a similar level. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and then some people, like sometimes like, even if they knew you were on weird attack actions, like sometimes people would over adjust and not understand that you were still like primarily an arcane deck that just playing 12 above rate attacks. So sticking on this Icelander train a little bit. So obviously you won the world championship with Icelander, but does the fact that you won the world championship or like people call you like the champ, does it ever add like extra pressure or negatively impact like your mental health? Like when it comes to like flesh and blood or does it just kind of like, is it just water off your back? Um, it, there are some things that, Oh gosh, this is a, this is kind of a deeper question to get into. There are some things about it that have negatively impacted my mental health overall, definitely a huge net positive on my life, but there are some things that are negatives. Um, I think my expectations of myself are kind of unreasonably high. Now I think a lot of people's expectations of me might be higher than is really reasonable. I think like, like it's a lot of things have to go right to win a tournament with so many good players in it. And I am not uh, responsible for all of those things that went right. Like sometimes you just get lucky and things go your way. Sometimes your top eight bracket has two briars in the quarterfinals or the semifinals in the finals. And that's probably your best matchup in the top eight. Um, sometimes you're horribly behind against an old time in Swiss. And then they draw four reds on the turn. You play a fused aether ice vein. And then the game is just swung because of that. Uh, so something else I noticed that's a little interesting is if we look back to like your first big success, it was on old time. You won the calling on old time. You played old time a lot. I would say for the next four to five months after that. And then you burnt out on old time and you never touched him again for the rest of the time. He was legal living legend or until he hit living legend. I don't think you ever played old time. I, again in another I played him at PT2. Did you? Oh yeah, yeah. you did. Yeah. I also yeah, I prism. Prism. yeah. I guess that's fair. Uh, I also was going to say, but I guess after worlds, I feel like you also kind of like burnt out off after Icelander. And I just, sometimes I worry that like you being so linked to that hero also might be frustrating because like flesh and blood's a deep game. There's lots of other interesting things to be doing in the game other than, you know, fusing eighth rice fate. It's fun. It's cool. But like that doesn't, I, I don't think you ever intended that to be like your identity in the game. Right. Yeah. I, Icelander is definitely still, in my opinion, the coolest hero in the game. I think she is still my favorite hero in the game. I, like if I had to commit to playing one hero for the rest of my flesh and blood life, it would probably be Icelander. But I also think I would quit flesh and blood a lot sooner if I was stuck playing one hero for the rest of the time I played flesh and blood. Like you said that I played old time a bunch. I, I did. I played old time a ton in Orlando and then Starvo came out and I'm like, old time's unplayable. And I moved on. I, mo I moved on to Starvo and I like, uh, once, I was introduced to the more controlling version of Starvo. I'm like, this is sweet. This is like a better version of old time. And you get a pitch stack, your super, super Starvo fuse things. And then they banned Autumn's Touch. And I'm like, 
okay, I, I, I feel like I lost the version of Starver that I enjoyed playing. It felt like a different hero to me. So I ended up playing Chain at Pro Tour 1 despite Starvo being maybe the best deck, maybe the second best deck, maybe the third best deck. It was definitely Chain, Starvo, and Prism were the top three. I felt good about playing Chain, though I did end up losing two, I think two Starvos in the Swiss. So huh. I, I beat more than two Starvos, but <laughs> I did this to two. So um, kind of, I think, a big part of it is I grow really attached to like a specific build of the hero, like something about the hero that I fall in love with basically. And once they banned amulet of ice, um, I felt like I lost a big part of what I liked about Icelander was, which was the flexibility of using like four, four card hands because you had all these powerful cards. I really, I don't, I don't, I didn't care about hypothermia. I think that card was kind of like toxic and not really, uh, <laughs> for, sure, for sure. Not, not really a card that you want to exist, but I, I felt, I kind of felt personally like, hurt when they ban amulet advice i'm like this is the what i loved about the hero like having this decision that you make like several turns of the game when are you popping this amulet for value um and then it cleaned up your hands and made it like like i really like to be able to use all the cards in my hand i talk about the value and stuff and all that and like anytime you end a turn without spending a card that's like so much value you're lighting on fire and heroes that are good at not doing that and not lighting that value on fire is something I'm drawn to. And when Icelander lost Amulet of Ice, we replaced it with Red Winner's Bite, which helped. And I ended up still winning Indianapolis with Red Winner's Bite and Icelander. But it lost a lot of the, a lot of what I was drawn to about the hero, I guess. Like, I, and then like when they banned Whale, I, I kind of was like planning to go back to Oldheim after after playing Icelander for so long, I'm like, I'm ready to be done with Icelander. I'm good. I need a break. And then they banned Whale. And that was like the part of Oldheim I liked because then the Oldheim decks kind of like shifted to just being like Bravo decks. And I played I played a lot of Oldheim testing for PT3. I thought I was going to play Oldheim in PT3 for a while, but I really didn't like the deck very much. And the parts of the deck that I, that meshed well with me kind of were gone with Winter's Well being gone and you, the ice cards being pretty bad. Um, I feel like I'm kind of rambling, but sure. no, I get it. <laughs> yeah, I, I asked you I, the question. You're answering the question. Okay, I I think I find things that I really like about heroes, and then when that's gone, it doesn't. It kind of doesn't feel like it matters so much whether the hero is like good or not at that point. It's like the things that drew me to the hero the parts of the hero that i like a lot a big chunk of that's gone and that makes me less interested in playing them and so i guess it's a good thing that flesh and blood has a lot of really cool heroes in it and um yeah that's all that's fair next question are you ready to move on to the next question yeah yeah let's go ahead uh you've talked about knowing how you're going to win the game before you start to play can you give some examples of some matchups you played of what that means? What kind of things are in your head, for instance, the Icelander versus like fly games or like the ice hero versus like aggressive decks or old high V prism about those dynamics that you want to discuss? So I guess by knowing how you're going to win the game before you start to play, that means knowing like, I, I guess I would say what I, what a game that I'm winning looks like not like know the know that I'm going to win the game because X thing. It's knowing my plan to attempt to win the game and what that looks like and trying to put that together. So, um, gosh, Icelander versus Phi, that feels so long ago. <laughs> I mean, it's 
I, I think Iceland yourself wins the game in a pretty consistent way, like across the board, right? You try to get your opponent to that, you know, somewhere between seven and 11 life total range. And then you just try to close it out with a Stormstrider's play. And the whole um, dynamic to the deck is making sure that you're trading and getting to those life exchanges where you're going to put your opponent to that life threshold before they kill you, basically, right? Yeah, and I guess, like, for specific matchups, for specific matchups, you know kind of what disruption you need to stop them from doing their things to kill you. Like, some heroes you really need to find Channel Lake Frigid against, and Icelander versus Fi was a matchup where it was often very important to find your Channel Lake Frigids and arsenal them. Um, arsenal Blizzards as well. Blizzard was quite good against Fi, especially since you could respond in Art of War with it sometimes, and then they'd have to pitch their card they wanted to banish with Art of War. And then their art of war doesn't do some do as much. So, well, then you also have like the role players that you have in your decks too. Where I think blue brain freeze is almost always in the deck, no matter what. Um, but you're not casting blue brain freeze against old him. Like maybe if like there's an insidious chill and you just want to strip a card that way, just for an ice fuse, it's kind of a bad waste of that card usually. But you could do it. Um, but you know you're m- more than likely not actually taking a card out of their hand when you f- fuse a blue ice va- or blue brain freeze versus old him versus when you fuse a blue brain freeze versus phi it's something you want to be doing it's an actively disruptive you know you're going to get a card out of their hand every time unless their hands are already atrocious and then whatever who cares <laughs> yeah and and a lot of the time when you look at a phi's hand and you take a card phi is a deck that's some turns are extremely vulnerable to one frostbite of disruption other hands are not other hands if you give them a frostbite and winning them you're just letting them use an excess blue that they had so it's also knowing what you're trying to do with each card so blue brain freeze yes you're trying to make the fi's hand awkward but you're also trying to use it in collaboration with your other disruption effects to both like make their hand more awkward and have the information to know if what you should be doing with the rest of your hand to really punish them yeah and i think overall some of the biggest examples i've learned in playing flesh and blood was basically the classic when you're playing old time you have your sweet guardian attack and you're like "Ooh, i'm gonna take 12 damage this turn so i can play my spinal crush and pummel it and then you do that thing you deal like four damage they have an unfunctional turn and you're still behind like six life and you're like huh that really wasn't good was it and you start to realize well that my plan isn't actually to be attacking my opponent with these attacks most of the time that's not actually what like my winning game state is looking like my winning game state is running my opponent out of threats and then just out efficienting being more efficient than them in a late game because of how good my weapons and then how good my blues are in second cycle and i think that's just like a huge learning curve for people to come in and where it's just like well i could do this line in my deck my deck has the potential to like the amount of decisions you can make in any given turn in flesh and blood are like dizzying but actually understanding like what the overall strategy of your deck and what game state you're working towards in order to like win a game is very different than just like being most efficient on like any given turn. Most of the time being the most efficient is like the correct play uh, overall, but it's not always the correct play, I guess, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And if you look at like, if you look at old prism with Luminaris and or- the auras, like, when you sat down against an opponent, you knew if you were going to be attacking them with heralds or if you're going to be prioritizing setting up auras. If you drew a hand of 
two Wartune Heralds and an Aura against Fi or Briar or some aggro deck, you're probably pitching that yellow Aura to play two Wartune Heralds. If you drew that hand against Oldheim or Bravo, you're pitching the Wartune Heralds and playing the four-cost Aura because you have a different game plan. The way you're winning against these Guardians is setting up a critical mass of Auras that they can't answer very efficiently and then just pinging them down with the Luminaris attacks with the Auras. And that's another, uh, I guess, an example of you know how you're going to win the game before you play based on your opponent's hero against guardians. You're going to set up a bunch of auras and ping them down against the aggro decks. You're going to attack them with a lot of heralds. You're going to try to arc light set and all their super high damage turn. Maybe the briars channel Mount heroic turn with a counter on it. You're going to put down the arc light set. And also she's going to waste that turn basically. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess along these lines, then uh, if we're going to these super long games and you were understanding the fundamental like core strategy of our decks, how do you start practicing like tracking pitch and um, are there any like memory tricks or something that you use to doing that? Like um, maybe a mind palace or something like that. Wasn't that uh, a famous Kano players technique? Yeah. So I, I have not figured out the mind palace technique. I Googled it a couple times. Um, it seems real good if you get it. I got smashed by that certain Kano player in the PTI event. Uh, He's a patron now. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Julian um, Sniffin. Yeah. So um, I I think there's a couple things that you should do when you're starting to track pitch. Um, the most important thing and the thing that will get you like 80 to 90% of the value that you will get that you need to like do well on tournaments is just remember what you pitched the last turn or two, try to remember the last couple of cards you pitch and then make sure that whatever you're pitching this turn, if you draw it with those cards that your hand is going to be functional because though you're going to draw those cards together. So if you pitch like if you pitch three blues and then the next card you pitch is another blue and none of these blues play well in a, in a, in a four blue hand. And maybe there maybe that several of them are two blocks as well then you're going to draw that hand and you're just going to die when you draw that hand because either you're going to take a bunch of damage because you have a bunch of two blocks or you're going to play a really inefficient hand with these blues that don't play well together. Um, not all heroes have ways to get around that where you just like kind of need to pitch your blues, but most of the blue heavy heroes tend to have blues that are really good together. For example, Bravo, if you're playing Anathos, then you want to pitch your Terra Sunder in your blue stacks or you want to pitch your Rouse the Ancients in your blue stacks. So like, you're not just going to draw all those blues together and do nothing. Um, we well, don't want to pitch your Terra Sunder next year, rouse the ancients. That's a, that's a kind of a Nambo. Sure. 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 <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I mean, it's fine. As long as you have another three cost blue, you just pitch the rouse again and Terra Sunder and then you swing into those. Sure. But yeah, um, but rouse is a card that gets significantly worse on third and fourth cycles. Cause since it's so card intensive, like, you yeah, get it's... Arsenal of Terra Sunder, and, and then you can two-card do the thing. If You you can't two-card Rouse the Ancients because the other card you're revealing is probably just going to be a Pulverize at that point, and then what are you doing? So Sure, sure. That is fair. These, um, are, these are the harsh pitch stack lessons I learned playing Old Time last season. Roger, our resident Guardian expert, has all the tips. So don't, don't third, yeah, four cycle you, your Rouse you want to learn Ancients. how to play Old Time last season, I'm... Well, you should go to Michael Fung first, but after him, I know <laughs> one or two things. <laughs> okay, so I think that ultimately, just like 
in matchups that are reasonably likely or have a real chance at going to second cycle, just making sure that you, the cards you're pitching together do function together. So one one thing I did once in, in Lexi, uh, me and Roger were playing a test game before PT3, and here I go, I'm like, all right, we're pitching our power cards. Here's my Art of War going to second cycle. Here's my Rain Raiders going to second cycle. Here's my Three of a Kind going to second cycle. And then I just drew those cards together, and I just died because I didn't do anything. <laughs> So just yeah. pay, pay a lot of attention to the cards that you pitch the last couple of turns and make sure that you're not pitching a dysfunctional hand. Um, once you get that down, you can start kind of paying attention to more other things. So in certain decks, you really need to track like where specific cards are in your pitch deck. There's a lot of ways different people do this. Um, Azalea in Outsiders Draft is one spot that I really started like putting a lot of effort into getting better at this because you really need to know when you're hitting that the red arrow that you pitched or the red arrow you azalea away because you need to azalea back into it in second cycle to give it dominate and just have your good red arrow so um i think everyone has their own methods for doing this but i try to just like i, I count where it is by keeping track of every card that goes under it and then i'm like okay right now there's three cards under it how many cards are in my deck? there's seven cards so if i draw four cards it'll be the fourth card i draw so I'm going to draw it in my next hand. But if it's if it, I put it at the bottom and then there's three cards under it and there's eight cards in my deck, then I'm like, okay, so I'm going to draw four and then it'll be my top card and I can Azalea into it. Um, and the way the you trick just I do use that, is making pairs. Pairs. It's just memory pairs. Yeah. So like I'm like, okay, my opponent just pitched a Channel Lake Frigid and a Pummel. It's like okay, or I just pitch a Channel Lake Frigid and a Pummel, and okay, Channel Lake Frigid Pummel, it's a pair, and then. Uh, you just play, pitch your next thing, and then you're like, okay. Then I pitched uh, Terra Sunder and uh, Buckling Blow. So then I have Terra Sunder, Buckling Blow, and then so like then you draw and you're like, oh, I just drew Channel Lake Fridge as my last card. Oh, okay. I know that my next card's a Pummel, and I don't 100% know that the, the Terra Sunder Buckling Blow is right after that, but basically it helps you like chunk basically and. Uh, it's, it's like the actual like memory technique like chunking information just trying to like group as much like information together so that you're kind of like linking it instead of keep trading each independent bit of information as like its own like string that you have that you're trying to keep track of i don't think anybody can do that um at least not reasonable people <laughs> uh so there's just like memory tricks that you can look into and use as well yeah like the mind palace yeah, I, I've never looked into Mind Palace. Maybe I'll Mind Palace after this. Uh, but yeah, I, I also think um, I would focus more on your pitch stack before your opponents. I think that it's a lot easier to see where you're making mistakes, see what when you're getting it right, when you're able to just see all the cards in your hand and get that like kind of not immediate feedback, but like that feedback together rather than like trying to track your opponent's stack. And if you get it wrong, well, you don't actually know which cards they have until like they play two of them in Arsenal one. And you're like, is that, is that the right spot? So I, I would focus on getting yours down first. And then like, as you get better at tracking yours, start paying attention to key cards from your opponent too. Yeah. And I don't think any, well, most people are going to be able to like, okay, so I pitched Buckling Blow, Terra Sunder, and then my opponent pitched um, Blue Fluster Fist and a red whelming gust wave the next turn and it's like doing like that like because like the fluster fist and whelming gust wave aren't like impactful cards but 
I guess like to this day, the channel, the channel like Frigid and Pummel sticks out to me from a game that I played because tracking the pummel was so important and knowing when my opponent was going to actually be presenting that pummel second cycle. So they pitched the channel like Frigid. I was like, oh, they have pummel in their hand. And I didn't track their pitch deck card for card to know that. I just grouped those two cards together, seeing that they pitched them together earlier in the game. And that kind of like gave me the heads up that like that's what was happening. So as far as like tracking your opponent's pitch, I think it's just like identify like what like the most threatening threatening cards are like and that you're doing that all the time anyways by seeing like looking through the graveyard being like okay well have you, how many copies of this have you played how many copies of that have you played so identifying like what the key cards are i think is a lot easier to like managing that yeah yeah makes sense um okay yeah next question yep if you had to ban one card and unban one card in flesh and blood right now what would they be Easiest unban of my life, Duskblade. I think Duskblade's fine. Warmongers exist now. It's just a hard reset for that card. Sure, Warmongers does line up very well against Duskblade. Yeah, and that was the whole like powerful thing because because I think the Living Legend match against Chain playing against Pete that one time like. We just did the math on all the games that we played post, like, because he was playing, there was no ban lists, Living Legend format, Chain V, Icelander. And in the games, like, Duskblade dealt less damage overall than uh, Rosetta Thorn would have in a lot of those games. But, like, it just speaks to, like, the overall power level of, like, how good Rosetta Thorn is overall and how long it takes Duskblade to get going overall because, like, you have to actually. Every turn that you're uh, not attacking with Rosetta Thorn, you're not like losing accrued value. But every time you're not attacking with Duskblade, like you're not building that extra counter. So like you're really incentivized to like try to like swing your Duskblade every turn after turn. I feel like, um, and then but then get just getting hard countered after prioritizing building your weapon up like that with Warmongers, I think would just completely balance the card because that was the thing like Oldheim could never beat a card like Duskblade before like just you just there was no way to consistently get them to like not be able to do their thing um but now there's just a clean one card answer that any deck could do to just like what this like clean but I don't know how do you feel yeah, about that I I think I think also part of the power of Duskblade too was the fact that chain was around who frequently just had like four extra cards five extra cards on a lot of turns so it was really easy to have it a non-attack and an attack he also had carry and husk which meant if you tried to spinal crush him to stop him from playing an attack and a non-attack well here's a husk <laughs> take and then attack with the, the dust blade again um i think that with chain being gone with warmongers being around i do think dust blade's a pretty safe unban um lexi and icelander are also much more disruptive than any other heroes were back then, not even counting Warmongers diplomacy. Like Lexi and Iceland are much more capable of like breaking turns and resetting it. So I, I think it would probably still be a it might it might still see some play over Rosetta Thorn and some of the Rune Blades, but I'm not sure it would be the right choice. Basically, yeah. to break even with Rosetta Thorn, and this is not counting any perks to dealing arcane damage or having split damage, you need to attack three times with the Dust Blade turned on. Because the first attack's getting the first counter, it'll be for three damage, so you're minus one from a Rosetta Thorn attack. The second attack, you're swinging for four, uh, which is the same as a Rosetta Thorn, so you're still minus one from the previous turn. The third turn you swing is for five, which is plus one from before, so then you're breaking even with what the Rosetta Thorn would have done over those three turns. So you need to attack with it four times with the trigger 
without losing the counters in between to ever get ahead of Rosetta Thorn. And that's not even to mention the fact that there's like advantages to having the split damage of Rosetta Thorn. Yeah, because if you look at like actualized damage, then where if your opponent's blocking for three in each one of these examples, it's like if they're just using one card uh, to mitigate the damage, like Rosetta Thorn is still beating Duskblade on the third attack because they block for three, take zero, block for three, take one, block for three, take two. So that's three total damage across these attacks, which is, but across two, two, and two from Rosetta Thorn, either way you use your one card to prevent damage, you're still three less damage actualized, so... Yeah, that's fair. Rosetta Thorn, good card. But as I think as soon as Briar rotates out, I think uh, Vincent and Viserai uh, will pretty clearly need some help. I don't even know if it like helps them since they're already getting hosed by Warmongers. I don't know if they want a card that also just makes them get even more hosed by Warmongers at this point, but who knows? Yeah, I, I, I like that answer of um, unbanning Duskblade. Um, what would I unban? Probably Amulet of Ice. I, <laughs> I love the card. I think Hypothermia, good riddance. You should not be allowed to be played an Ice Laner, but Amulet of Ice, eh, Ice Laner is winning everything though right now. So what can I, what can I say? I just don't like how, I, I, I don't like her as much without Amulet of Ice. We, I already talked about this for a while. So, uh, ban. I, I know what I'd ban. That's a new card. Warmonger's Diplomacy. Get it out of here. I think... There's a lot that can be said about it. Maybe Codex of Frailty also. That one's pretty pretty good. <laughs> but I think Warmongers kind of like really hurts Viscerai, really hurts Azalea. Really, I guess it really hurts all the Rune Blades. Um, but I think I, I don't like that it was printed as a blue block three. I think a red block two, even a yellow block two, red block three even, just like when cards are like this warping and this powerful and like they're deliberately like strong cyborg cards, I feel like it's really weird to be a blue block three and also generic. So everyone can have access to it that it wants it. That's, that's not actually true because some heroes can't really afford to play warmongers. Um, it does feel really weird to me. If you look at like, I think diabolic edict is the rune blade card that kills, uh, kills an aura from each player. That's like, a red two block Runeblade card. And I'm like, this, this is where, this is where hate cards kind of like feel like they should be to me. They should be like at least some combination of those things. Class lock, like bad blocking. If they're generic, red. no yeah. block, yeah. no go again. You, you are working to like disrupt your opponent meaningful in that way then. Yeah. And yeah. And Warhorn did see play. It was, but it was very niche. It was for a very specific purpose. Whereas Warmonger's Diplomacy, you just throw three in your deck, in a lot of decks, and it's just, just good. Just hoses some heroes, some heroes. Like, you look at a Viscerai hand, and they Warmonger's Diplomacy, and you're like, mm, man, Azalea doesn't get to play the game sometimes. Yeah, I'm worried that, like, now the cat's out of the bag, and if they consider price in bands ever, because the card's approaching, like, $50 now at this point, and, like, you know, you could have argued that maybe Artibor should have been banned at certain points or Chant or Command and Conquer. And it's just like, I guess, like they are, fill very similar roles as just being like these ubiquitous, very powerful, generic, majestic cards. Um, but, you know, it, given that there is a quite literal big cost to players when you ban a card like this, 
uh, nobody wants to spend $150 on cards, have the card get banned, and then like, well, I just threw away $150. So I don't know. It feels a little awkward. And I think my answer actually just makes Warhorn even better, but it's Voltaire. Um, I felt so smart. I felt so big-brained when James White on the Push the Point, I think it was, interview was like, yeah, Voltaire's the most problematic card in Classic Constructed at the moment. I was like, yes. Yes, brother. You do know things about this game. Who knew? James White <laughs> <laughs> knew things about Flesh and Blood. What a Who crazy, knew? crazy idea. Uh, yeah, one resource for an action point, instant speed load. It's it's that that card's that card's absurd. Like it is very clearly like the like it breaks the fundamentals of the ranger class. If you're having like these super powerful on hit effects tied to your attacks, sure, that's that's a thing you can be doing. But then to be able to go wide as such as like Lexi does, um, and then previously she was able to go even wider with bullseye bracers so i think that was like a really good targeted plan to like narrow her like arrow range uh but still no other class has uh access to action points like that in the game at the moment like there's just it just doesn't exist and they saw that uh in that interview he said they very purposefully balanced new numinaris new luminaris um, around paying extra for the go again. And they're going to be very careful with like giving out go again on equipment uh, going forward to heroes. And I guess in the previous most problematic like card he said was, was Luminaris, the old Luminaris uh, before that, just because it gave just zero resource go again to everything for your whole turn. So um, I think giving action points to heroes is like incredibly powerful and there's no effect in the game that just gives action points like Voltaire does at the moment not even getting into the, like the whole issues of like the instant speed loads and the whole shenanigans that happen around all those timing interactions like if we're just, I'm just talking strictly about like the access to action points is just is just like an issue and people will say well that's that then that just kills the hero well then like I I don't like I would rather they come up with like a new bow or a new mechanic or cards in the deck to play and balance around those then have to deal with a broken weapon and we even saw them pull the trigger on banning a weapon that was too good with winner's whale like that was a shocking ban when it happened because people are like well they didn't ban luminaris well they probably should have they probably should have banned luminaris but you know hindsight's 2020 so my answer is voltaire get it out of here yeah, that's that's fair. I, I actually think that Luminaris was a big part of their reasoning for implementing the Living Legend for weapons rotating with the heroes. <laughs> yeah, I get that card <laughs> out of here. <laughs> <laughs> because they knew they had to put another Light Illusionist at some point, but they were like, we cannot just have Luminaris again. They're just going to play the exact same deck <laughs> because Prism's hero power, a lot less impactful than Luminaris was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You could argue that like, I think we're just seeing now like how much of Prism's power level was just tied to Luminaris, which is like, it was so subtle. And I don't think a lot of people have like, people talked about it, but I don't think it was like truly, truly appreciated now until we're, we're in this new Luminaris land where like, oh, it's so many resources to attack with our ores now with Iris. It's so, so <laughs> many, so many resources. Mm -hmm. I used to pay zero. Now I have to pay three per. That's 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 an infinity increase, you know. I, I, th I think I would actually, I think I'd actually change my unban answer, if I can go back and unban a different card. I got I got two cards that I think are on my list of cards that I don't 
Ah, no, just one, just one. I think I'd unban Belittle. I think it's has a really interesting deck building cost. Five's been dead since the card's been banned. Hasn't done anything. Um, and yeah, I think it was overly, overly harsh. I don't think Five was even like, like Five. Five was definitely, in, in my opinion, Five was solidly like a tier below Old Time and Icelander. I think those were the top two, and then Five was like maybe third. Briar might have been third, but Briar was really bad in Icelander, and I, I don't think it needed to be hit. And yeah, so I, I'd probably, I'd probably unban Belittle. I think it's a cool deck building decision. I think it leads to interesting play patterns where you keep like three and four card hands because you have Belittle that, that's powerful. And when when you don't have the cards to go with it, it's a two block. The Minoisms are two blocks. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was never a big believer in Belittle Minoism to begin with the whole time while it was legal. So I mean, like, I'm sure I'm, <laughs> I'm right there with you. Like. I, the power level was clearly in like Fi's like ability and access to really cheap go again attacks going wide. Like I think we're and seeing searing ember blade. Yeah, searing ember blade. And like we're seeing a pretty consistent theme now. Like, would you have to like if they just ban searing ember blade instead and then you have to play Kadashi Fi instead, like is Belittle Minoism like an issue then? I don't think so. And then it's not an issue in the format anymore. So basically that entire card, like that interaction, but the whole little minnowism like interaction died because of like Phi specifically. You can then also make the argument going forward. Um, it does restrict design space because I think new Bolton would be interesting with cool. Belittle little, like little minnow. I don't even know if it would still be good. He needs uh, it. He needs yes, but like uh, there are some decks uh, that would be a lot more interesting with that combo pair available to them, but it's not. So they're not in where we are, where we are. Yeah. I, I think if I was going back with all the knowledge I have now, I would have made Belittle Minoism. Like if I was like a developer and I was making the card, knowing everything I know now, I would have made Belittle Minoism a little bit weaker than it is, but I don't think it's like inherently a problem. I think it's just like slightly stronger make- than it probably should be. Just make a little task for two at red. Like we saw meeps now. So I mean, like just make base belittle. It's a little attack, come in for two. The, the, the smaller attack, then that belittle attack, come in for one. And then the littlest attack comes in for zero. Like, <laughs> oh no, zero power attacks. There's not there. I mean, we have Phoenix Flame. <laughs> there are, there are merits to like cheap attacks for zero. Like, especially when it's pulling resources and like these extra cards out of your deck. I th- I don't think it would see a lot of play, but I think like, it'd be it'd be fine like it'd be a card that would exist i don't think it'd be like the worst design card in flesh and blood by any stretch of the imagination okay anything else buddy anything else you want to touch on before we wrap things up uh i don't know i i remember before we started doing this episode you were like is this enough questions i'm like i i I think we'll have enough to talk about there's a lot to talk about but we kind of drifted away from the questions a little bit i got rambly at a couple times but it was a good good talk good conversation yeah I'm excited for nationals. I think, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I could have said I was excited a few weeks ago, but I been grinding out the testing, finding a deck I'm finally happy with and looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. I think, uh, I think this is going to be the first tournament where like the team is really starting to rally behind a deck. We're all, we're getting everybody in all, all the people are finally coalescing behind the power level of the deck we're building. And like, it's cool. It's interesting. 
we'll see. I'm, I'm sure there will be a few stragglers that don't join, jump, jump the ship. But yeah, I'm sure Zach's like still like 80 percent to register Viscerai for some reason. And spoilers, we're not breaking Viscerai. Sorry, but you know, there's a, <laughs> a bunch of other heroes we could be breaking. So. It's not for some reason. He like crushed the calling with Viscerai not that long ago. Yeah, Oldham was in that tournament, and Viscerai crushed Oldham. Warmongers didn't exist. <laughs> those are both true <laughs> things. I agree with both of those statements. <laughs> well, next time you're playing in a calling with old time and warmongers diplomacy, not in the format, always remember, mind your manners. Thanks for watching. And then on.